If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to join me in Luke chapter 8. We're going to study a story that I know is probably familiar to you. The audience to which Jesus is speaking in this lesson is literally a boat full of disciples. So if you're a follower of Christ, I know that this message has a lesson in it for you and for me. In Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all of the gospel accounts, each individual writer has as their goal and their objective to make certain that we, the reader, understand that Jesus is none other than God in the flesh. No doubt, unmistakably, he is man, but he is God as well. And one of the names that we would ascribe to Jesus is the God-man, in complete control and authority over his creation. That is never more clear than it is in this passage of Scripture that we'll read in a moment. Now, I need you to understand, before we get to verse 22 of Luke chapter 8, this is at the conclusion of one of the busiest days recorded of Jesus' ministry. He has been teaching to a vast amount of people along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, right near the city of Capernaum, which maybe we could designate his earthly ministry headquarters. So many people have mobbed in to hear Jesus that he has stepped into a little fishing boat and he's pushed out from the shore just a little ways and is using that area like an amphitheater. And Jesus has been teaching. The end of the day now has arrived and Jesus wants to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee out across that lake. We'll pick up in verse 22 on this very day. And the Bible says, now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep and there came down a storm of wind on the lake and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him And awake him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, in the conclusion of that little story's account, the disciples are amazed that the wind and the water obeys the voice of Jesus. We should not be surprised because we've just concluded a study in John chapter 1 where we read this in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, speaking of Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. If Jesus has the power to create, certainly he has the power to be authoritative over his creation. And we've established this. The writer of Hebrews tells us, speaking of Jesus, by whom also he made the worlds. 
In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gives a similar testimony when he says all things were created by him. I'm saying this so that we can be certain God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, is in the boat with the disciples. He is the creator and has authority over all of his creation. One wrote, he's the creator of the universe. All things exist because he made them. And all things are sustained Because he sustains them. That is an established fact. I also want you to make note as we begin our study of the very pointed question that Jesus asks the disciples. And I want to be clear that I don't think this is a general assessment question. This isn't just to get you thinking in general question. I think this is a pointed question from Jesus Christ when he looks at the disciples and he asks them, where is your faith? Where is your faith, Peter? Where is your faith, James? Where is your faith, John? Where is your faith? Think in the most practical terms. Where is it? Have you displaced it? Where did you leave it? Where is your faith? When Jesus first said that, I'm sure that the disciples felt its intended rebuke. Do you or do you not trust me? Jesus was asking. It's a very profound question. When the storm hit, disciples, where was your faith? Was it in what your eyes were seeing? Was it in what your skin was feeling? Was it in the sensation and the awareness of the power of the wind that was tossing the boat about? Or was it in me? Clearly, the disciples are afraid of death. I'm a pastor. I am a believer of God's word. I believe that if we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, as Jesus promised, we have a home in heaven. I believe that if I do not see death, but the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that I will, as he promised in John 14, go to be where he is, and he has a place prepared for me as a believer. I have that comfort concerning death. But with all of that, I can still say to you, I'm not excited about dying. Does anyone join me in that? Yeah. Peace concerning death and eternity, just not really the journey to get there. It concerns me. The disciples are clearly in the same boat. They are fearing for their lives. Sigmund Freud said this as he argued, the biggest problem we face as human beings is the threat of death. He said, the threat of death comes at us from many angles. With the widespread presence of wars and murders, we learn to fear other human beings. In addition to the threat of violent human beings, we also have the threat of disease and natural catastrophes like earthquakes, floods, and fires. So, he inquired, the question is this, how do you negotiate with cancer? How do you plead with a fire? How do you bribe a flood? All of these inanimate forces that threaten to destroy us are immune to negotiation. They are immune to pleading. They are immune to bribery. How do you prepare yourself for that? Well, I'll say, obviously, you don't negotiate with these situations. You don't plead with these situations. You don't bribe these situations. We must prepare beforehand by establishing our faith. There came down a storm. That's what Luke tells us. 
And when he says that, we should pick up on the sense of foreboding that those words have within them. There came down a storm. I'm getting older and older in life. I don't really remember school as much as I once did, though I know it is school time. I was good at and actually enjoyed taking tests. I'm strange like that. My brain works if you will put data in, I can hold on to it and I can spit that data back out. Now, if you ask me a couple of hours afterwards, I probably don't retain any of the data, but I'm good for a test when I can prepare. I despised pop quizzes. And the reason I despised pop quizzes is all of my student life was a facade. A pop quiz asks this question, are you listening to the lecture? The answer to that is no. I have tuned you out. If you warn me that on Thursday I am going to be accountable for statistics and data, I can properly prepare. But if you are asking me day in and day out, am I listening to what you're saying? No. But here in Thursday, I can find somebody else's notes and I can prepare for a test. But if you give me a pop quiz, you are going to expose the fact that I am not paying attention to you. And what Jesus is doing in a very real way when we read that phrase, there came down a storm, is he is giving the disciples a pop quiz. Not a test that you can prepare for. Not a facade that you can maintain. He is about to expose the real them. In fact, in Mark's account of this day of teaching that Jesus has done, Mark says as Jesus was teaching over and again, he would use this phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As Jesus was teaching, he would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In effect, what Jesus was saying is, I've said this, pay attention to what I'm saying. Listen in, focus, if you have ears, hear this, pay attention. And now the pop quiz arrives. The question is, disciples, have you been listening? As Verse 23 says, as they sailed, he fell asleep and there came down a storm of wind on the lake and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. Now, I don't want to bore you to death with the language, but I certainly want to paint a vivid picture of what's going on here. We don't really grasp it because there's no video of it and our minds are trained to only see the veracity of the moment if we have video proof of it. Well, we don't have video proof of this storm, but there's a lot of information in the language that is used. A storm of wind indicates a cyclonic or hurricane-like event. This is not an average, everyday, ordinary storm on the Sea of Galilee. This was a serious life-taking event. If you understand a little bit about the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, as we can study, sits about 680 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by hills, and on one side is Mount Hermon. Cold winds come sweeping down off of Mount Hermon and trapped in over the lake. Storms can move in very fast, and they can cause incredible fury, and they can be very violent. In Matthew's account of this moment in time, again, it is informative. It's instructive how he describes it. He describes it in the Greek language as a seismos megas, 
a seismos megas, which means, quite simply, this was a seismic event of mega proportions. This is a cyclonic event. This is a hurricane-like event. This is a major storm where the disciples are fearing for their lives. Luke told us their boat was filling up. And it doesn't take much to fill up their boat, as we'll see in a moment. Remember, many of these disciples are seasoned fishermen. They have certainly endured storms on the Sea of Galilee. They have navigated these waters since they were little boys. Peter, James, and John from the village of Capernaum where they left were very familiar with all of the sight lines of the shore. And yet they deem that their lives are in jeopardy, that it's all over. They are at their end. They're saying, in effect, as many storms as I've been in on this sea, I've never been in one just like this. We know it's in the dead of night. We know they have no guiding light to light their way. This is not a good situation. In the 23rd verse, they say we are in jeopardy. That's Luke's assessment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In jeopardy, when you study that word, it is an exclamation that says the game is lost. I've lost the game. The game is over. There's no winning this one. We are in jeopardy. In effect, they're failing the pop quiz. Matthew tells us the boat was covered by waves. Luke tells us the boat is filling up. Mark tells us that the boat is swamped as well. What they're learning very quickly is they cannot trust the boat that they are in to save them. Whenever we envision Bible stories, it's interesting what comes to mind. We think of Noah and the ark, and we think of cavemen walking around. But it wasn't like that. We think of the New Testament stuff and we struggle to understand it. I doubt that what we envision in our minds as the boat that Jesus and the disciples were in was very much like it actually was. It's interesting to me that in recent years, the hull of a fishing boat was discovered about five miles south of Capernaum. That's where Jesus left from. It was carbon dated to right around the time of Jesus, sometime in the first century. Obviously, I'm not saying this is the boat. Likely, this is not the boat. But no doubt, this is the kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples would have used on the Sea of Galilee. The scientists that found this boat measured it 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and certainly it's been diminished at this point, but it was four and a half feet high, made of cedar and oak, and regularly would have held about 15 people, which means certainly this could have held the 12 disciples and Jesus, and when we picture Jesus asleep in the back of this vessel, and we picture the disciples in this vessel passing over the Sea of Galilee, you can imagine that a storm rising up would probably panic at us. Most of us couldn't navigate a kayak or a canoe without tipping it over, much less this, in the midst of a storm. No matter how you slice it, I would not want to endure any storm, much less a seismic event of mega proportions in a boat like this. What I am trying to establish as vividly as I can is to communicate to you that the Bible is not a dead book, it's a living book, and there's much contained in here for us to learn. The disciples are afraid for their lives in the midst of a seismic event of mega proportions, and they cannot trust the vessel that they are in. 
They cannot trust their own experience to navigate this, but in the midst of the boat, they have the master present with them. In verse 23, I'll reference it again. The Bible says, as they sailed, he being Jesus fell asleep, which communicates to us that Jesus was there. He was present and he was sleeping. Think about this for just a moment. When the storm was raging and Jesus was sleeping, what looked more powerful? A raging storm that was swamping the boat or a sleeping Jesus? Well, no doubt all of us would have reacted like the disciples did. The more powerful thing in this situation is clearly a raging storm and not a sleeping Jesus. I think it's also worth noting that Jesus is exhausted. He's entirely divine. That's going to become clear here momentarily. Yet at the same time, he's entirely human. He does get hungry. He does get thirsty. He does suffer pain and weariness. He has a need for sleep. Jesus is not faking this. He's not pretending. And in a panic, the disciples will wake Jesus up. The Bible tells us in Matthew's account that they go to him very matter-of-factly. Matthew says in 8.25, And his disciples came to him and awake him, saying, Lord, save us. We perish. We perish was not hyperbolic speech. They think they are dying. In Luke's account, as we read, they awake him. It's a little more of a cry. They say, Master, Master, we perish. There's something very telling in Mark's account. Because in Mark's account, we hear they're a little bit accusatory of Jesus. We can hear that they are rebuking him in Mark 4.38 as Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. They awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Which means this is multiple voices being thrown at Jesus in a tizzy, in a panic. These are not accounts that negate one another. They enhance one another. And there is a sense in there that Jesus doesn't care for them because they are perishing and he is sleeping. The storm is raging and Jesus is resting. Don't you care? Why don't you do something about this? They're frightened by the storm and in their anxiety-ridden, panicked state, they're angry and upset somewhat with Jesus for an apparent lack of concern for their well-being. Well, of course Jesus cared. I'm not ruining the story by telling you in each and every one of the accounts, Jesus arises, he rebukes the wind and the raging of the water and they cease and there was a calm and Mark said there was a great calm and Matthew says there was a great calm. Jesus rebuked the storm. He stopped the raging of the water and the ultimate result of the intervention of Jesus into this storm is that there was a calm, a great calm, a great calm. In all of the accounts, they're saying the same thing. Jesus spoke and he rebuked the storm and it stopped. He rebuked the storm. It's the same word these writers use when Jesus spoke to a demon. He rebuked the demon and it came out. I think it's intriguing. One author wrote of this word, this word for rebuke is the perfect word to describe an authority figure bringing a subordinate back into line. By raising his voice, he is bringing a subordinate who is behaving in an insubordinate fashion back into line. It is very telling to me. No theatrics, no effort. He spoke and the wind stopped. He spoke to the water and the water stopped instantaneously. 
The water and the wind recognized the voice of their creator just as he would tell death to release Lazarus and it did. So he tells the wind to stop blowing and the water to stop rolling and all of it adheres to him. The very tense of these verbs indicates that it immediately stopped. Jesus effectively says to the waves, play dead. And like an obedient dog, the water immediately lies down. How strange it must have been to hear your master, rabbi, teacher yelling at the elements. We say sometimes of cantankerous, bitter old people, they go out and just yell at the sky. Jesus in this moment is speaking to the elements and they adhere to him. Now again, I think the potency of this story is lost somewhat in the familiarity that we have with it. But think for just a moment, as the disciples are bailing the boat out, perhaps just with cupped hands or whatever vessel they had on there, as they are cowering under the blowing, whipping wind and the rain, as perhaps they even get ready to brace for one more wave to sweep over the boat, as Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, all of it stops immediately, and as they cower for the coming wave, it just never arrives. And the wind, which literally one instance earlier was blowing over the boat, is no longer moving. And the rain that was pouring out of the sky has completely stopped. And the water that is around the boat, which was raging and violent one instant earlier, is now a great calm. I can't get over how amazing that must have been. There's no way for us to comprehend or understand. We know that in Genesis, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and he spoke these elements into existence. And what is going to become painfully clear to the disciples is it is this same God who is now in the boat with the disciples. His spoken word is powerful. Nothing in nature could ever disobey his command. But the question that Jesus asks the disciples is painful for me to meditate on. He asks the disciples, where is your faith? I also find the disciples are having a conversation in a boat that size. Jesus is obviously privy to it. Even if they were on a big boat, Jesus could hear the very thoughts and intents of their heart. In verse 25, the second part of Luke 8, they were afraid and they wondered, saying one to another, no doubt whispering, what manner of man is this? That's an exclamation point, which means they were exclaiming this to one another. He commandeth even the winds and the water and they obey him. They are subordinate to him. What is this that's in the boat with us? One pastor brought up something. He said, whenever I read this verse, I'm convicted all over again that the wind and the waves are better disciples than me. It's as if they recognized the voice of their creator and immediately obeyed. The disciples were confused. The wind was not confused as to who that was in the boat. I'm not trying to humanize it. The water was not confused as to what was in that boat. That was the creator God that was in the boat. The disciples who had learned and heard and witnessed were confused and exclaiming to each other, what exactly is this in the boat with us? And Jesus asks them in Luke 8.25, where is your faith? Mark tells us there was another question that he asked them. Mark says he asked them, why are you so fearful? 
Now, whenever we read scripture like that, we think of it somewhat in generic terms. Where is your faith? Why are you so fearful? Like Jesus is just trying to prompt a conversation or a thought. But I say to you, rather, this is a pointed question from Jesus. Jesus is looking at these men whom he knows well whom he knows personally, and he is looking them in the eye and he is saying, where is your faith, Peter? Where did you put it? Why are you so afraid, Philip? Why are you so afraid, James? Why are you so afraid, Nathaniel? Why are you so afraid, John? Why are you, of all people, so afraid? Where is your faith of everybody that's on the face of the earth? How are you personally lacking this faith? Did you not hear me? Have you not listened to me? Have you not watched? Have you not been privy to all of these things that I have done? Many miracles have been performed up to this point. Many lessons have been taught. Many personal interactions with Jesus. And he is stunned or he's at least communicating amazement at their lack of faith and the presence of fear in them. Why are you so timid? Why are you so cowardly? I used to think as I read this that the disciples in verse 40 of Mark were still afraid of the storm. But the storm's over. They're now fearful because of the calm that exists around them. The storm had certainly introduced fear, but Jesus had solved that problem. Now they are fearful of the fact that they know God's in the boat with them. Their eyes have been opened that Jesus is who he says he is. All of these fellows largely were raised in the Jewish tradition. Most of them are aware of the declarations of the psalmist concerning God. Over and again in Psalm 65, 7, we read this. He which stilleth the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people. In Psalm 89.9, speaking of God, Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. In Psalm 93.4, The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. In Psalm 107.29, speaking of God, He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. When they know that, speaking about God, and then see their master do that in the midst of the storm, they are freshly aware of who is in the boat with them, and they are stunned into amazement. The only thing perhaps more frightening than being in a small boat in the midst of a big storm is being in a small boat with a man who shouts at big storms and gets his way. And the fear that the disciples tell, again, is instructive. We are flippant with a holy and a powerful God. I am glad that He is my heavenly Father, and I do not doubt that. I am glad that I can boldly go to the throne of grace. I'm encouraged by that scripture, but I cannot flippantly approach God, and I am instructed by the response of the disciples when they encounter afresh and anew that this is God in the boat with them, and they are in awe and reverence and stunned with a holy fear of that recognition. I just don't think we fear God as much as we fear the elements. Why are you so afraid, Jesus asks. It's a very profound question. It points to faithlessness. One author said this, 
The secret to our emancipation from enslavement to our excessive fears is a fear transfer. We need to stop fearing other things more than we do God. Excessive fears arise because there is so much that presses in on us. We can't control everything anyway, but we imagine that we can, to some degree, exert some influence over the outcome of events. We cannot. And so our transfer, in order to win over that pressing fear, is to transfer our fear from fear of that object, of that event, of that situation, of that cataclysmic thought, over to God, who is in complete control, and revere Him and His might and His holiness and His power more than we do this situation. And until we do that, we will be dominated by a fear that cripples us. But they didn't fear God as much. They saw the waves. They felt the rain. They sensed the pain. They should have had confidence that Jesus was in control and that Jesus was at their side. And I don't say that lightly. They literally should have had confidence in Jesus. Number one, Jesus had already said to them when they left the shore, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And Jesus always got what he predicted. If Jesus said, we're going to the other side of the lake, they were going to make it across the lake. Jesus was going to be crucified on a cross if they'd have just thought for a moment. He wasn't going to die in a small fishing vessel on the Sea of Galilee. They were going to make it. If they would have just sat there in the midst of the boat, and this would have been a stunning act of faith, and literally done nothing exerted no effort, just sat in the boat as the waves came over and swept in. Just straightened their hair as the wind blew through it. Just wiped a little bit of the water away from their eyes. If they just would have done that, they would have found they were going to make it to the other side. But instead, being like us, they did everything but rest in confidence in the presence of Jesus. They began to bail the boat. They began to brace for the waves. They began to panic. Anxiety dominated them. Fear controlled them. They began to doubt their master. They rebuked Jesus. They wonder whether or not he cares. If they just would have sat still, they would have made it to the other side. But that's counterintuitive to all of our nature. I should panic. I know God is reliant on me to empty this boat. I know I've got to grab an oar. I've got to drive against this wind and this rain and these waves. They should have just had confidence in Jesus, but they feared the elements more than they did God. Yet again, one said, real faith is always future faith. Yes, faith has to do with the past. What you believe, what you recognize. Yes, God has done things in the past. Yes, faith is not just in the past. It's more than that. It's believing in a kind of theoretical sense that God is good, that He exists, that He is powerful. Real faith must always be future faith to believe that God can do something now and can do something later. He is the God of the impossible. A future faith. Laying hold on that reality. The God... In the boat with the disciples was the author of this storm. This is not incidental. This is intentional. This is God teaching his disciples a lesson that we get to learn by proxy from them. And I'm glad I wasn't in the boat.
But they were. And they teach us. I wonder why sometimes the disciples didn't just immediately wake Jesus up. I'm guessing that some of it had to do with something pretty obvious. They'd grown up on the Sea of Galilee. They had handled boats like this all their lives. They had navigated this shoreline. They'd crossed this sea. They had experience with some storms. This was their turf. This was their territory, their area of expertise. Why, oh why, would they need Jesus, who clearly grew up the son of a carpenter, and not in the midst of this sea? Why would I need his input or help? I've got this. And Jesus made certain the storm was so big that they were aware, even in their area of expertise, they did have this, that they desperately needed him. I think perhaps they waited and waited and waited because it was their area of expertise. Perhaps some of them were looking over their shoulder thinking, I mean, he's going to wake up soon. (laughs) He's got to wake up soon. I'm not going to go back there and wake him up because I don't want to seem like the one who needs him. I'm not going to go back there and rouse him with everybody else around me working so hard and exerting so much effort and trying so diligently. I'm not going to be the one that's like, I'm not going to bail. I'm going to go wake Jesus up. I don't want to be that guy. Look around at how busy everybody is. Look at how hard they're all working. I think had they just gone to the back of the boat and woke Jesus up, or I honestly believe had they just sat confidently and waited it out, they'd have made it to the other side. But they wake Jesus up and one old fisherman who was on that very boat by the name of Peter will later write this in his first letter in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. You know what it takes if you're Peter and you grew up on a fishing boat to have to acknowledge this is a bigger storm than I've ever seen. And I'm, I'm a, I, I happen, this just is my opinion. I, I have no way, of course, to prove this. But Peter was often the vocal disciple. He was a spokesman for the disciples. It would not stun me in the least if when Mark tells us, yeah, they went back and said, carest thou not that we perish, that may have been Peter who spoke oftentimes before he thought, you're not going to wash my feet. I don't need you to wash my feet. He, he, he's the one that rebuked Jesus for talking about the cross. It would not stun me in the least if Peter went back and said, come on, do you not even care that we perish? It required Peter to humble himself, to go to the back of the boat, to say to Jesus, I've been on this lake all my life. I cannot handle this one. We're perishing and we need you. And yet he'll come back in a season of maturity, which I'm sure he wishes he had attained earlier. And he will say, humble yourself and cast your care on him. For he does care for you. He does. But it requires us to acknowledge we don't have this one. I can't control every moment of this situation. We fear our employers because largely in their power is our way of life. We fear situations in health and finance and the world at large because, again, death seems to wait around every corner. 
We fear when things get too distant from us that we just can't exert control. And once it gets beyond our control, it's doomed for failure. Or is it? If we could humble ourselves and release control and remember that every situation we engage in, regardless of the seismic mega event that it may be to us, we start every conversation with God with the reality that he cares. He cares. He's not careless about it. He cares. In seasons of self-conscious humiliation, one wrote, it's good to know that God cares for us. Yes, Anxiety and grief are present. But remember, God is near too. In that verse, Peter encourages us to pour out our hearts before God in the light of the knowledge of His concern. If it is a concern to you, He has preceded you in that concern. It's also a concern to Him. If it is something that constitutes a care for you, he cares for it. There's nothing too insignificant. There's nothing so small that we can't take it to God and say, I'm concerned about this. Be anxious. Be careful for nothing, but everything by prayer. Whatever it is, stop being so proud. Stop being so self-sufficient and cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.